Thanks for joining us at Fort William Baptist Church in Thunder Bay, Ontario. We are currently working through the book of 1 Thessalonians. In this book, we see the heart of Paul for God's people. It's a yearning for them to walk in the will of God and have close fellowship with the Spirit. As we delve into this book, we will see Paul's burden that the people find refreshment in the God who loves them, that they would fix their thoughts on God's coming, and that they would live lives that please Him, knowing how to live with and before the Holy God. I trust that God will work in this last sermon. So 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, starting in verse 23, hear the word of our God. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful, he will surely do it. Brothers, pray for us. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we are so thankful for your word. It is rich and good. It is edifying. It is powerful. It changes our hearts and our minds. It draws us to worship you. And we are so thankful for the book of 1 Thessalonians. We're so thankful for all that you have taught us. You have been faithful to instruct us in the way of Christ. You've shown us so much of your glory, grace, and kindness. And we pray now as we come to this end that you would continue to instruct us in Jesus and that you would be so pleased to show us your glory this morning. Father, we want to see you this morning as we look into these words that Paul pens for us. So would you open our eyes, would you open our ears that we might see and hear and believe and see through faith. Do this, we pray. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If there is such a thing to a secret to the Christian life, there was such a thing, it would be this, to have a, a big view of God and a small view of everything else. And when I say everything else, I mean everything else. And if there was something that tripped us up in the Christian life, something that hindered our fruitfulness and our faithfulness, it would be this, to have a small view of God and a big view of everything else. And with those two sentences, have a big view of God, small view of everything else, a a small view of God, big view of everything else. I'm talking about our, our perception of who God is. And here is the point. Our perception of God really matters for us. And we have to get this clear in our heads. If you think big things about God, that doesn't make God any bigger. Nor if you think small things about God, that does not make God any smaller. God is who he is and he will always be who he is. He's immutable. He cannot change. But get this, your perception of God changes you. 
and what you think and really believe about God, what you can see of God and what you know of God, what you really know of him actually changes you and how you live before him as a Christian. And so when God is small, think here, weightless or impotent or weak or boring or, or tedious or dull, there is as a consequent little godliness, little honor, little holiness, little faithfulness. For example, when God is small, something like money gets really big and it becomes all-consuming. And money gets big and all-consuming because it can tangibly provide all sorts of things for you. Money can provide food and, and housing and clothes and all of these things that we need. But we know that money can do more than that. And that's why money attracts us. Money can provide status. This is who I am. It can provide comfort. It can provide power and hope. It can get you what you want, what you want, and how you want it, when you want it. And so money comes to us and, and it captures our hearts. And when it captures our hearts, we chase after it because we're, we're greedy for it and we get worried about it because we, we don't know if we're gonna have enough of it or if it's gonna be taken away for us. Or we get anxious or we get envious about it and we get angry that someone might have more of it than us. And so when God is small, the result is that there's little godliness. But when God is big, think here, glory, majesty, power, might, honor, worth, weight, beauty, grace, kindness. When God is big and he is big, all sorts of godliness is the result. When God begins to fill your vision and he can do that, the result is faithfulness and honor and holiness. For example, when God is big, something like suffering can be endured. It doesn't flip your canoe over in the middle of the lake and capsize you. When hard things come your way and your dreams are crushed, you don't deconstruct your faith because God is big, because you can see his faithfulness, because you know his goodness, because you've encountered his power, you keep going on when it's hard, when it's difficult. In fact, you do more than that. You just don't endure your suffering. You meet your suffering with joy and you do that because your soul is anchored to something bigger than your circumstances, than your suffering. Your soul has been anchored to God and you have been assured of this. God is my reward. He's mine. And so when God is big, the result is faithfulness and honor and purity and holiness. And as we connect this to the letter of 1 Thessalonians, this is what Paul has been working towards this whole letter. He has been working on our perception of God so that we might, as his readers, see God for who he truly is. And as a result, we might live before God as we ought to live as his people. I just want to remind you as we begin some of what Paul has told us about God. I can't tell you all of it, but just a few things. First off, Paul has told us about the grace and kindness of God. Just remember Thessalonica for a moment. Thessalonica was a city steeped in paganism. They worshiped idols. They offered up sacrifices to gods and goddesses in hope that these gods and goddesses would give them what they want, whether there was comfort or peace or wealth. They would offer up these sacrifices trying to appease these gods. 
They would bend their knees and give homage to, to objects of gold and silver and wood and metal. And that's how they thought and that's how they lived and that's how they thought and lived for years and years. But what happened? The gospel came to Thessalonica and through the preaching of the gospel, Paul and his ministry team, God was so pleased to deliver a people from this bondage to these false gods. That's what God did. He, he stopped their worship of these foreign gods and he turned their hearts to worship him and him alone and he, he turned their hearts to wait for Jesus, his glory. And as we think about it, we have seen through Paul's letter the grace of God. You want to see what kindness is? That's God's kindness. That's real grace. God's stepping in into the city of paganism and turning a people toward him. Or think about this. Paul has told us about God's power. Paul has told us that Jesus died and he has told us this multiple times. And when Paul says Jesus died, he is serious. Jesus really did die. His heart stopped beating. His lungs stopped breathing. His brain stopped thinking. He was placed in a tomb. And there he sat for three days, dead. But Paul has told us about God's power. What did God do? God raised up his son from the dead and gave him life indestructible. And Paul doesn't stop there. He's been showing us God's power. At some point, dear Christian, you will die too. This is guaranteed. You might die today or next week or a decade from now, but you will die. And so your heart will stop beating. Your lungs will stop breathing. Your brain will stop thinking. They'll put you in a casket. They'll bury you in the ground. And that's where you will lay. But what has Paul told us? He's told us about the power of God. He has told us that at some determined point, Jesus himself will come back from heaven. He will split open the skies. He will give a cry of command and the dead in Christ will raise, be raised. That's glorious. And what have we seen in Paul's preaching? We have seen God's power. That's real power, power that can raise the dead. Power that you will experience if you are in Jesus. You will be raised from the dead. And Paul has also told us about God's wrath. And this might be something that we'd like to forget. But Paul doesn't let us forget about God's wrath. He keeps bringing it up. It's interesting to see how many times God's wrath is mentioned in this short letter. But for the Christian, there is no fear of God's wrath. In Jesus and only in Jesus, there is safety. For he is the one who delivers us from the wrath to come. Chapter 1, verse 10. But for the one who refuses Jesus and his gospel and his kingdom, Paul tells us that there is a day of destruction for them. And Paul has not been shy about this. He has said it before us. Chapter 5, verse 3, he said, While people are saying there's peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. Paul has told us that. And in Paul's writing, we see God's wrath. We see that God will punish sinners. And it is a terrible thing. They will not escape. When God comes in judgment, if you are not in Jesus, you will not escape from that lot of wrath. And that should make us tremble at what we see of God. And so here we see Paul's ministry strategy. What is Paul doing throughout this letter? He is holding up God to us. 
That's what he's doing. He's lifting up God. Do you see him in his grace? Do you see him in his power? Do you see him in his wrath? And Paul knows as Christians, that's what we need to see. And as we come to Paul's final words, we find a prayer or better yet a benediction in a few directions. Paul remains true to his ministry strategy. In these last words, Paul comes to us and he lifts up God to us that we might see him once again. And so our goal this morning is to look at these verses and to look with faith so that we might see God for who he is and as a result we might live before him as we ought to. And so to do that, we're going to look at Paul's benediction, his closing prayer. And so Paul's closing prayer has two petitions. And embedded in these two petitions, there are two promises. So I'm going to set before you two promises. If you are in Jesus, God is going to do this for you. And after looking at those two promises, I'm going to put underneath those promises a guarantee, some bedrock. God will do these things for you because of this. So let's look at the first promise that God gives us. It's in the first half of verse 23. Paul writes, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. Let's just start working at that verse by picking out one word, and that word is sanctify. So this word belongs to the word group of holiness. And as we think about it, we've already heard quite a bit about holiness in this letter. As we think about it, Paul has peppered us with commands about holiness. He told us that sanctification or holiness, chapter 4, verse 3, I believe, our call, God's will for us, is sanctification. So very practically, what ought I to be concerned about with my life? What I ought to be pursuing and doing? What ought to be the agenda of my life? Paul fills it in. The agenda for your life is holiness. And Paul has taught us about this. This call takes on particularities. And so Paul taught about the matter of sex. Chapter 4, verse 3, abstain from sexual immorality. Chapter 4, verse 4, control your own body in holiness and honor. Chapter 4, verse 6, do not transgress or wrong your brother in this matter. But we have to be clear, these commands about holiness do not just relate to sexuality. Paul's just giving us some pointed examples, some examples that these believers in Thessalonica needed to hear. But this call to holiness is expansive. It reaches out and grabs hold of everything in our lives. This call to holiness lays claim to your hands and what you do with them. It lays claim to your eyes and and what you look at. It lays claim to your ears and what you listen to. It lays claim to your your mind and what you you think about. It lays claim to your hands and, and all that you do with them and your feet and where you go with them. Really, the call of holiness says this to us. All of you now belongs to God. So go now and give everything to God. Paul puts it like this in Romans 12.1. I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. What is Paul saying? Take your whole humanity and offer it up to God. That's what it means to be holy. And as we think about this call that Paul has given us, it hits like a ton of bricks, doesn't it? Or it should. Just think about it for a moment. There is so much to give to God. 
there's so much to our lives. There's so much going on at home, for example. There is marriage, there's the kids, there is the house. There are all these tasks that need to be done for the running of this household. There's what's going on at work. You you think about all the things going at work, duties, tasks, responsibilities. They pile up one after another after another. And there's so much going on inside of us. We're complicated people. There's emotions and anxiety and fear and hope and love and plans and dreams. There's so much going on in the margins of our lives. There's iPhones and, and TV and soccer practice and bread making and fishing trips and car repairs. There's so much to us. And what the call of holiness says is this, all of it, nothing accepted, must be devoted to God. The whole of your existence to God. And that should hit like a ton of bricks. Everything must be devoted to God. And what makes this hit like a ton of bricks isn't just the sheer scope of our lives, but also the resistance we meet in this work. We daily, we inwardly, we personally battle against desires against holiness. The call of holiness comes to us and says, offer yourself up to God. And there is this principle in us. Every time that call comes to us, it says this, no. It might say that flatly or it might say it about particular things in our lives. No, I'm not going to offer that up to God. I'm not going to offer up this to God. I'm going to hold on to this. This is mine. And so sin rears up in our hearts and says no. And then there are temptations. There's these temptations to selfishness and lust and greed and laziness. And all of these temptations as they work in our souls weaken us. And then there's just weariness and fatigue and tiredness. And they discourage us because we meet these realities again and again and again. So Paul lays claim to us. Give yourselves to God, everything about you. And as we take it in, as we think about the scope of our lives and our hearts, how they often resist, we say, Paul, this is an impossible demand to meet. I don't know if I can do this. But now listen again to what Paul prays. Listen to this benediction that Paul gives to the people of God. He says, now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. Can you hear the good news in that verse? Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. Let me put it like this. The the matter of holiness is not a DIY project. So you're looking on your phone, you're on YouTube, and you see this great project you can do, and so you get this idea in your head, I'm going to do this as well. And so you set out with joy and eagerness, you get all the things you need for this project, and you start your work, but quickly you get in over your head. And after you get in over your head, the project stalls out. And the project stalls out, and you get discouraged, and what do you do? You quit. The project's done. But you need to hear this. Holiness is God's work. Holiness is not a do-it-yourself project. God will sanctify you. And here is the promise you can lash your heart to. Paul gives it to us. God will finish the work that he started in you. This is glorious. He will give you the grace that you need for obedience. He will fulfill every resolve for holiness in you. He will bring you to the full stature of manhood or womanhood in Jesus. He will make you ready and fit for the coming of Christ. That's glorious. God will sanctify you. And as we look at the first half of 23, 
we also need to focus in on a, a second word. So we've been thinking about that word sanctify and we've met its demands and we hear this glorious promise, God will sanctify you. And Paul modifies this word with this word. He will sanctify you completely. Or as some translations put it, through and through. I once had a, a roommate in college and he had a dramatic conversion experience. We went to high school together actually, and he was an avowed atheist. And at drop of a hat, he became a Christian, and not just any sort of Christian, he became a zealous Christian. He loved the Bible, and he loved to tell others about Jesus. And his parents were watching him, and they saw his zeal for the Bible and church, his zeal for evangelism. He was evangelizing even them, and they became really concerned about him. They were concerned that he lost all moderation in his life. They were concerned that this Christianity thing was taking over his life. This Jesus thing was getting too big for him. And so in concern, they even reached out to his pastor, asking the pastor, could you just dial back our son a bit? He's, he's just going overboard. But listen to Paul here. This is not a concern for Paul. He promises here in verse 23 that God will take the Christian completely for himself. Think about it like this. There is no such thing as portion control when it comes to holiness. There is no moderation when it comes to the religion of Christianity. There is no warning, drink responsibility when it comes to the Lord our God. And what God does in the gospel is he does this. He lay, lays claim to the whole of the Christian. And we can be sure of this. When God is done with his work of sanctification, he will have the whole of the Christian to himself. That is what Paul is promising. God will take that man, that woman, all of that man and that woman for himself. And with verse 23, we get the best news we could ever hear. Is that good news to you? Christian, hear this, there is a day and it is coming when there will be no resistance in your heart to the call of holiness. Nothing in you will pull you back from God. Nothing in you will say no to God. It will all be yes and yes and yes from the very bottom of your heart. No temptation will pull you aside and distract you. No discouragement will draw you back or slow you down. God will sanctify you completely. He will take you for himself and the result will be that you will have God as your portion forever. And that's the best news we could ever hear. Christian, hear this. God will sanctify you completely. And this means that you will have God completely and fully forever. That's what Paul is promising us here. We get God. And God gets us. And if you know God and how good God is, that is the best news you could ever hear. And so that's our first promise. God will sanctify you completely. And what do we see of God? We see his goodness and his grace. We see his power and his glory. That's our God. We can move on to a second promise that Paul gives us. So we're still looking at verse 23. We're just looking at the second half of it now. And Paul says this. May your spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The second coming of Jesus is a big deal for Paul. And it's not just a big deal. It's really everything for Paul as we have studied this letter. 
And this is where Paul orients the the totality of his ministry. He is aiming to get a people ready for Jesus. And he is ministering in a way so that he might be able to stand in the day of Jesus. So that is what Paul does. What does he do? He, He works for the Thessalonians' faith. He is careful to encourage them so that they won't turn back from Jesus in the day of persecution. When they get shaky in their faith about Jesus, what does he do? He sends Timothy off to them that Timothy might establish and ground them in the hope of the gospel. When they are overcome with grief, what does Paul do? He writes chapter four and chapter five. Jesus is coming. He will raise you up. Do not grieve as those who have no hope, for you have Jesus. And Paul's work doesn't stop there. Paul works so that these Thessalonians would continue to practice the commands of Jesus, that they would, in ever-increasing fashion, grow in good works and deeds of love. He writes this letter to clear up moral confusion and chaos in the church so that they might know what the will of God is. Rejoice, give thanks, pray abstain from sexual immorality. He labors so that these Christians would be found alert and sober and ready for Jesus, that they wouldn't be sleeping or drunk like the rest of the world. Paul is laboring to get these people ready for Jesus. Or as Paul says, that they might be blameless in the day of Christ. Now it is clear as we think about Paul that he worked. Paul was a worker and he worked hard. He worked night and day, morning and evening. He worked with his hands, making tents. He worked with his words, speaking them to the people of God. But we can't misunderstand Paul or his work here. Get this, Paul's hope wasn't in his work. Paul's hope wasn't in his ministry skills or abilities or achievements. His hope wasn't even in the Thessalonians and that their continued obedience to the truth. No, we see here at the end of this letter that Paul places his hope squarely on Jesus and God's keeping power. And this is the second promise that Paul gives to us. It's this, God will keep his people. God will keep his people. Just think about it for a moment. We need to labor here because this promise that Paul gives us is expansive. It is expansive as we think about the time frame of this command. God will keep you until the day of Jesus. So hear this. Christian, there is no moment in your life when you are outside of God's keeping power. From the day of your call, that is the day that the gospel made impact in your life, to the day that Jesus returns, God will keep you. He will do it. So as you think about it, this applies to your childhood years. God will keep you. This applies to your teenage years and all of the the strangeness of being a teenager. God will keep you. It belongs to your university years. God will keep you. It applies to early adulthood. God will keep you. It applies to middle age. It applies to retirement. It applies to your deathbed. God will keep you. That's the promise that Paul gives us. And it's expansive in time frame. God will keep you the entirety of your life. And it's also expansive in application. Paul here, he's working at at giving us this promise and you can just see him, he's grasping for all of the words that he can to describe our humanity. He tells us that God will keep our spirits and not just our spirits, but our souls and not just our souls, but our bodies. And he is telling us not one aspect of our humanity 
however you analyze it, however you think about it, is not outside of God's loving, preserving care of you. God is keeping the entirety of your humanity. And we might ask, well, what does this actually look like for God to keep me? I see the promise. It's, it's good. It's starting to warm my heart. But what does it actually look like for God to keep me? Well, we can just go to the Bible because the Bible tells all sorts of truths about God's keeping power. It looks like this, Luke chapter 22, verses 31 and 32. Jesus says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. How will God keep you? He will keep you from Satan and his power and his schemes, his day of temptation. And Satan will fail, why? Because God is keeping you. And he is keeping you through the prayers of Jesus, your intercessor. It looks like Psalm 19, verses 12 through 13. The psalmist says, Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Christian, how is God going to keep you? He's going to keep you from sin and its dominating power. He will not let sin overcome you or enslave you or domineer you. Sin will lose. Why? Because of God's keeping power. You shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. It looks like Psalm chapter 3 verses 1 through 3. The psalmist cries out, O Lord, how many are my foes. Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. But the psalmist lands on this. He says, but you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. How is God going to keep you, Christian? He's going to keep you from your enemies. Whether they be spiritual or physical, whether they be some program or some person, God will keep you from your enemies. No enemy, no matter how vicious or ruthless, will be able to finally overcome you and keep you from the presence of God. God will keep you. That's God's keeping power. Where it looks like Isaiah 43, verse 2. When you pass through the waters, Isaiah says, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned. And the flame, it shall not consume you. Isaiah is talking about all manners of suffering and trial and calamity. And Isaiah promises this. You won't be destroyed by your circumstances. You won't be destroyed by your circumstances. Think about all the suffering circumstances in your life. If you are in Jesus, you will not be destroyed by them. It is impossible. Why? Because of God's keeping power. I will be with you. That is what Yahweh says to his people. I'll be with you. One last text. It looks like John chapter 10, verses 27 through 29. Jesus says this. If you were in Jesus, take these words because they're yours. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my father's 
hands. Christian, why will you be kept to the very end? It's because you're in the hand of Jesus. Better yet, you're in the hand of the Father. You can take those words as your own. God will keep you. So there we have two promises from Paul. First promise, God will sanctify you completely. Glorious. Second promise, God will keep you spirit, soul, and body blameless until the day of Jesus. And I hope, I pray that you can see God in those promises because he's there in them. His glory, his majesty, his power, his grace. They're all there. But I want to ask one more question here. How can we be sure about any of this? These are big promises. God will sanctify you completely. God will keep you until the day of Jesus. How can you be sure about any of this? And we live in an age of doubt. We are good at doubting. We're trained to be doubters. We live our lives like doubters. Just think about your money. You have investments. What do you do with them? You're taught to diversify your investments. You don't put all of your money in one piggy bank. Think about what you do with all of your possessions. You insure your car, your house, and many other things. What do you do with your computer? You back up your files again and again and again. This life is risky and unstable and unfickle, and so we back everything up. We're skeptical about it. And so as Paul gives us these promises, what kind of guarantee do we have for them? Verse 24, he who calls you is faithful. He who calls you is faithful, he will surely do it. Paul grounds everything here on this. God is faithful and he will do what he says he will do. Just let that settle for a moment. Paul gives us these great promises. They're so big, they're so grand. And Paul grounds it on the bedrock of God's faithfulness. He says, he who calls you is faithful, he will surely do it. And that is all that Paul says. God is faithful. He offers us no elaborate argument here. He could have done that. He doesn't give us a long paragraph here. He could have done that. He doesn't give us any tangible examples. He could have done that. He could have talked about Abraham and Moses and David, all of these saints in the Old Testament. But he doesn't do that. What does Paul do? He just takes the bald truth and he just sets it before us as God's people. He says, God is faithful. He will do what he said he will do. That's it. And this is where we are met with the call to faith. Brother, sister, and Jesus, I ask you this morning, will you take God at his word? Will you believe today that God will do as he said? that he'll keep you, that he'll sanctify you. Will you believe him today? He is faithful. Will you take him at his word? And if you were to heed this call, I tell you, you cannot diversify your trust. You cannot hedge your bets here. You cannot buy an insurance plan on top of this. This call to faith demands complete and total allegiance. And if you want to obtain these promises for yourself, you must do this. You must venture all upon God's faithfulness and that is all you can venture on. God is faithful. He will do what he said. And if you are outside of Jesus, 
He's not your savior. Just take a look at this God and the promises that he gives. What has he done for you today? He has placarded his promises before you. This is the sort of God we worship, a God who loves to give his promises to his people. And they're here for the taking. What must you do? You must do the same thing as God's people must do. You must take God at his word, and these promises are all yours. They're all yours. He will sanctify you. He will keep you blameless until the day of Jesus. Just take him at his word. And so there we have our text. And I trust, brothers and sisters, that you've seen God. And Paul is a faithful minister of Jesus. He's remained true to his ministry strategy. He's brought us to God and we've seen God for who he is. And this is where we get to set down the letter of 1 Thessalonians. And we get to set it down with the truth about God ringing in our ears. Paul gives us this word. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. And this, this word changes everything. It changes everything. And we get to figure out how it changes us today and tomorrow and next week and the next decade. So let's pray. Well, Father, we are so thankful for this word. We need your promises and we need to hear them again and again. We are forgetful people. We keep forgetting your faithfulness and your kindness and your grace and your mercy and you have placarded these promises before us this morning. And so we ask, would you drill them into our hearts that we might live by them, that we might be a people of great confidence because you are the faithful God and you will do what you have said. So fill us with faith as we take hold of these promises that we might live by them. Be pleased to do this, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.